Volume Two, Chapter Twenty Third of The Antiquary. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Antiquary by Sir Walter Scott, Chapter Twenty Third. Nay, if she love me not, I care not for her. Shall I look pale because the maiden blooms, or sigh because she smiles, and smiles on others, not I? By heaven, I hold my peace too dear to let it, like the plume upon her cap, shake at each nod that her caprice shall dictate. Old Play Hector, said his uncle to Captain M'Intyre, in the course of their walk homeward, I am sometimes inclined to suspect that, in one respect, you are a fool. If you only think me so in one respect, sir, I am sure you do me more grace than I expected or deserve. I mean in one particular, par excellence answered the antiquary. I have sometimes thought that you have cast your eyes upon Miss Wardour. Well, sir, said M'Intyre with much composure. Well, sir, echoed his uncle, deuce take the fellow. He answers me as if it were the most reasonable thing in the world, that he, a captain in the army, and nothing at all besides, should marry the daughter of a baronet. I presume to think, sir, said the young Highlander, there would be no degradation on Miss Wardour's part in point of family. Oh, heaven forbid we should come on that topic. No, no, equal both, both on the table-end of gentility, and qualified to look down on every roturier in Scotland. And in point of fortune we are pretty even, since neither of us have got any, continued Hector. There may be an error, but I cannot plead guilty to presumption. "'But here lies the error, then, if you call it so,' replied his uncle. "'She won't have you, Hector.' "'Indeed, sir?' "'It is very sure, Hector. "'And to make it double sure, I must inform you that she likes another man. "'She misunderstood some words I once said to her, "'and I have since been able to guess at the interpretation she put on them. "'At the time I was unable to account for her hesitation and blushing, "'but, my poor Hector,' I now understand them as a death-signal to your hopes and pretensions. So I advise you to beat your retreat and draw off your forces as well as you can, for the fort is too well garrisoned for you to storm it. I've no occasion to beat any retreat, uncle, said Hector, holding himself very upright and marching with a sort of dogged and offended solemnity. No man needs to retreat that has never advanced. There are women in Scotland besides Miss Wardour, of his good family. And better taste, said his uncle. Doubtless there are, Hector, and though I cannot say but that she is one of the most accomplished, as well as sensible girls I have seen, yet I doubt much of her merit would be cast away on you, a showy figure now, with two cross-feathers above her noddle, one green, one blue, who would wear a riding habit of the regimental complexion, drive a gig one day, and the next review the regiment on the grey, trotting pony which dragged that vehicle. Hoc erat in wotis. These are the qualities that would subdue you, especially if she had a taste for natural history, and left a specimen of a phoca. It's a little hard, sir, said Hector. I must have that cursed seal thrown in my face on all occasions. But I care a little about it, and I shall not break my heart for Miss Wardour. She is free to choose for herself, and I wish her all happiness. Magnanimously resolved, thou prop of Troy, 
Why, Hector, I was afraid of a scene. Your sister told me you were desperately in love with Miss Wardour. Sir, answered the young man, you would not have me desperately in love with a woman that does not care about me. Well, nephew, said the antiquary, more seriously, there is doubtless much sense in what you say, yet I would have given a great deal, some twenty or twenty-five years since, to have been able to think as you do. Anybody, I suppose, may think as they please on such subjects, said Hector. Not according to the old school, said old Buck, but, as I said before, the practice of the modern seems in this case the most prudential, though I think scarcely the most interesting. But tell me your ideas now on this prevailing subject of an invasion. The cry is still, they come. Hector, swallowing his mortification, which he was peculiarly anxious to conceal from his uncle's satirical observation, readily entered into a conversation which was to turn the antiquary's thoughts from Miss Wardour and the seal. When they reached Monkbarns, the communicating to the ladies the events which had taken place at the castle, with the counter-information of how long dinner had waited before the womankind had ventured to eat it in the antiquary's absence, averted these delicate topics of discussion. The next morning the antiquary arose early, and, as Caxon had not yet made his appearance, he began mentally to feel the absence of the petty news and small talk of which the ex-perruquier was a faithful reporter, and which habit had made as necessary to the antiquary as his occasional pinch of snuff, although he held, or affected to hold, both to be of the same intrinsic value. The feeling of vacuity peculiar to such a deprivation was alleviated by the appearance of old Ochiltree, sauntering beside the clipped yew and holly hedges, with the air of a person quite at home. Indeed, so familiar had he been of late, that even Juno did not bark at him, but contented herself with watching him with a close and vigilant eye. Our antiquary stepped out in his nightgown, and instantly received and returned his greeting. They are coming now in good earnest, Monkbarns. I just come from Firepart to bring you the news, and then I'll step away back again. The searchers just come into the bay, and they say she's been chased by a French fleet. The search? said old Buck, reflecting a moment. Oh! Aye, aye, Captain Taffril's gunbrig, the search. What? Any relation to search number two? said old Buck catching at the light which the name of the vessel seemed to throw on the mysterious chest of treasure. The mendicant, like a man detected in a frolic, put his bonnet before his face, yet could not help laughing heartily. The deals in you, Monkbarns, for going odds and evens meet. Why thought you would have laid that and that together? Hoid, I'm clean catch now. I see it all, said old Buck, as plain as a legend on a medal of high preservation. The box in which the bullion was found belonged to the gunbrig, and the treasure to my phoenix? Eddie nodded assent, and was buried there that Sir Arthur might receive relief in his difficulties. By me, said Eddie, and twy the brigsmen, but they didn't ken its contents, and thought it some bit smuggling concern of the captain's. I watched day and night till I saw it in the right hand, and then, when that German devil was glowering at the lid of the kist. They liked mutton wheel that licked where the yole. I think some Scottish devil put it into my hand to play him yon either cantrip, 
Now, you see, if I had said more or less to Bailey Littlejohn, I behooved to have come out with I this story, and vexed would Mr. Lovell I been to have it brought to light. So I thought it would stand to anything rather than that. I must say he has chosen his confident well, said Old Buck, though somewhat strangely. I say this for myself, Monkbarns, answered the mendicant, that I am the fittest man in the hired country to trust with Siller, for I neither want it nor wish for it, nor could use it if I had it. But the lad had no muckle choice in the matter, for he thought he was leaving the country for ever. I trust he's mistaken in that thought. And the night was set in when we learned, by a strange chance, Sir Arthur's sigh distress, and Lovell was obliged to be on board as the day dawned. But five nights afterwards the brig stood into the bay, and I met the boat by appointment, and we buried the treasure where you find it. This was a very romantic, foolish exploit, said Old Buck. Why not trust me or any other friend? The blood of your sister's son, replied Eddie, was on his hands, and him may be dead outright. What time had he to take counsel, or how could he ask it of you by anybody? You are right, but what if Dowsterswivel had come before you? There's little fear as coming there without Sir Arthur. He had gotten a sorry glyph the night before, and never intended to look near the place again, unless he had been brought there sting and ling. He kenned well the first pose was of his own hiding, and how could he expect a second? He just hovered on about it to make the mar off Sir Arthur. Then how, said old Buck, should Sir Arthur have come there unless the German had brought him? Humph, answered Eddie dryly. I had a story about Mr. Cut would have brought him forty miles, or you either. Besides, it was to be thought he would be for visiting the place he had found the first siller in. He can nigh the secret of that job. In short, the siller being in this shape, Sir Arthur in utter difficulties, and Lovell determined he should never ken the hand that helped him, for that was what he insisted most upon. We couldn't think of a better thing to the gear in his gate, though we simmered it and wintered it ere sae long. And if by ony queer mischance Douster Civil had got his claws on it, I was instantly to have informed you or the sheriff o' the hoy story. Well, notwithstanding all these wise precautions, I think your contrivance succeeded better than such a clumsy one deserved, Eddie. But how the deuce came Lovell by such a mass of silver ingots? That's just what I canna tell ye. But they were put on board with his things at Fairport, it's like, and we stowed them into either the ammunition boxes off the brig, both for concealment and convenience of carriage. Lord, said old Buck, his recollection recurring to the earlier part of his acquaintance with Lovell, and this young fellow, who is putting hundreds on so strange a hazard, I must be recommending a subscription to him and paying his bill at the ferry. I never will pay any person's bill again, that's certain. And you kept up a constant correspondence with Lovell, I suppose. I just guyed a bit scrape of a pen frae him to say there would, as yesterday fell, be a packet at Tannenberg, with letters of great consequence to the Knockwinnock folk, for they jalous the opening of our letters at Fairport. And that's aye true. I hear Mrs. Mailsetters to lose her office for looking after other folk's business and neglecting her ain. 
and what do you expect now, Eddie, for being the adviser and messenger and guard and confidential person in all these matters? They'll have it, do I expect, expecting that high the gentles will come to the Gaberlunzi's burial, and maybe you'll carry the head yourself as you did poor Steenie Mucklebackets. What trouble was it to me? I was ganging about at any rate. Oh, but I was blithe when I got out of prison, though, for I thought, what if that weary letter should come when I am closed up here like an oyster, and I should gang wrong for want hunt? And was I thought I mun make a clean breast and tell ye about it, but then I couldn't weel do that without contravening Mr. Lovell's positive orders, and I reckon he had to see somebody at Edinburgh afore he could do what he, he was to do for Sir Arthur and his family. Well, and to your public news, Eddie, so they are still coming, are they? Troth what they say, sigh, sir, and there's come down strict orders for the forces and volunteers to be alert, and there's a clever young officer to come here forthwith, to look at our means of defence. I saw the Baileys last clean his belts in white breeks. I gie her a hand, for you mun think she was no more clever at it, and I say I get all the news for my pains. And what think you as an old soldier? Troth, I canna. And they come so money as they speak of, there'll be odds against us. But there's money old childs among thy volunteers, and I want to say muckle about them that's no weel and no very able, because I'm something that gate myself. But we's do our best. What? So your martial spirit is rising again, Eddie? Even in our ashes glow their wanted fires. I would have not thought you, Eddie, had so much to fight for. Me no muckle to fight for, sir. Is no there a country to fight for? And the burnsides that I gang dondrin beside, and the hearse, I the good wives that guy me my bit of bread, and the bits o' weans that come toddling to play with me when I come about to Lonward town. Dale, he continued, grasping his pike-staff with great emphasis, and I had as good a pith as I had good will and a good cause. I should give some of them a day's camping. Bravo, bravo, Eddie. The country's in little ultimate danger when the beggar's as ready to fight for his dish as the laird for his land. Their further conversation reverted to the particulars of the night, passed by the mendicant and Lovell in the ruins of St. Ruth, by the details of which the antiquary was highly amused. I would have given a guinea, he said, to have seen the scoundrelly German under the agonies of those terrors, which it is part of his own quackery to inspire into others, and trembling alternately for the fury of his patron and the apparition of some hobgoblin. Troth, said the beggar, there was time for him to be cowed, for you would have thought the very spirit of Helen Harness had taken possession of the body of Sir Arthur. But what will come of the landloper? I have had a letter this morning, from which I understand he has acquitted you of the charge he brought against you, and offers to make such discoveries as will render the settlement of Sir Arthur's affairs a more easy task than we apprehended. So writes the sheriff, and adds that he has given some private information of importance to government, in consideration of which I understand he will be sent back to play the knave in his own country. And all the bunny engines and wheels, and the coves and shoes down at Glenwithershins yonder. What's to come of them? said Eddie. I hope the men, before they are dispersed, 
will make a bonfire of their gimcracks, as any army destroy their artillery, when forced to raise a siege. And as for the holes, Eddie, I abandon them as rat-traps, for the benefit of the next wise men who may choose to drop the substance to snatch at a shadow. Hey, sirs, guide aside, to burn the engines, that's a great waste. Had you not better try to get back part of your hundred pounds with the sale of the materials? He continued with an air of affected condolence. Not a farthing, said the antiquary, peevishly, taking a turn from him and making a step or two away. Then returning, half-smiling, at his own pettishness, he said, Get thee into the house, Eddie, and remember my counsel. Never speak to me about a mine, nor to my nephew Hector about a phoca. That is, a seal, as you call it. I want me ganging my ways back to Fairport, said the wanderer. I want to see what they're saying there about the invasion. But I mind what your honour says, nor to speak to you about a seal, nor to the captain about the hundred pounds that ye guide to Douster. Confound thee, I desired thee not to mention that to me. Dear me, said Eddie, with affected surprise. Weel, I thought there was nothing but what your honour could I stud in, in the way of agreeable conversation. Unless it was about the praetorian yonder, or the bottle that the packman sell it to ye for an old coin. Shaw, shaw, said the antiquary, turning from him hastily and retreating to the house. The mendicant looked after him a moment, and with a chuckling laugh, such as that which a magpie or a parrot applauds a successful exploit of mischief. He resumed once more the road to Fairport. His habits had given him a sort of restlessness, much increased by the pleasure he took in gathering news, and in a short time he had regained the town which he left in the morning, for no reason that he knew himself, unless just a high a bit of crack with the monk barns. End chapter twenty third.